Hello, and welcome again to Exploring Mental Illness, everything you wanted to know but were afraid to ask. Good job. My, yeah, last, last week, did about four or five takes on that. So uh, I'm Derek Mulhan here with Carrie Ballou. How are you? I am fantastic, Derek. How are you today? Hey, you know, the sun's shining. I'm on this side of the grass. It's always good. Absolutely. And the sun is definitely shining today. Thank goodness spring decided to show up. Yeah, it might only be a couple of weeks, but we'll take it. So we have two great guests here today. Um, We've had a we've had a run of doctors um, and now we've had a run of run of awesome guests coming in to talk about and um, destigmatize mental illness like I've been trying to do. Um, with your help here, why don't you uh, why don't you introduce? Let's get right into this. I agree. So we have with us uh, Allie and Christine. Um, full names: uh, Allie Beard. Yeah, wonderful. Uh, Allie, tell us a little about yourself. Uh, I'm 19 years old. I just finished my uh, freshman year of college. I actually got home like an hour ago, um, and I'm so happy to be here. Please don't gloss over where you go to school. Oh, she will. I absolutely will. <laughs> I go to a school in Boston. Uh, moving on. She goes to Harvard. 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 We have to. We have to. Yeah. Do a little okay. It's Harvard. Oh, yeah. well, fantastic. Congratulations. What are you studying? Thank you. Uh, undeclared right now, but thinking of going into the neuropsych field. There's always a job for you at Fuller. <laughs> Leave it that. <laughs> That'll put my mom's mind at ease. She's already down my back about what is your career. That's not important, important though. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, um, I've been running, uh, running from anxiety with Christine for almost a year now, and it is like the most fun thing. If I have a free day, I always try to dive in and get some work done for the organization, and it's what I love to do. Wonderful. And Christine Ravisi Weinstein. Did I say it right? I could be picky. It's Ravisi, but Ravisi? yes, you said it right. Yeah. Yeah, you said it right. All right. I got close. I was excited you so, about that. You did fine. Good job. <laughs> um, so tell us a little about yourself and about running from anxiety. Yeah. So I am th- about to be 38 uh, in a month. I am a science teacher at the high school in Attleboro. Um, I'm also the science coordinator. Um, and uh, began this sort of journey with this organization with Allie 11 months ago. So we're still, from an organizational standpoint, in our infancy. I was an athlete in high school, kind of got out of that in college, and then when I became a teacher, you know, you just oftentimes don't have time for that. And so I took up running as a way to kind of get back into some movement and working out because I had missed it, and uh realized the benefits of it for my emotional health and it was actually more important to me than my physical health so that's what I do now I work during the day at the high school when I have free time I work the organization um, and you know with my kids so it's a little bit about me can you um can you both describe when you were diagnosed and you know how you came to that conclusion that you said you know what something's not right here I need to figure out what it is and how did how did that come about? Um, I actually had a moment my sophomore year of high school. Um, a friend of mine pulled me aside in the hallway and kind of opened up about her experience. She told me that she was in therapy. She had anxiety and um, voiced concern that I was kind of exhibiting similar symptoms to what she had and um, just really wanted me to be better and be my best self. So she recommended a few things and I eventually got help for myself, realized that what was wrong was more than just like, oh, I'm stressed because there's a test on Friday. It was like generalized anxiety disorder. And I've also been dealing with depression since then. Um, So yeah, sophomore, I guess I was 16 or so. For me, it was a little bit different um, given that, you know, I'm 20 years older than Allie. Um, My journey to diagnosis was quite different. I would say that like even though we still have a lot of work to do in terms of destigmatizing mental illness, we're in a better place now than we were 20 years ago. Um, that's for sure. So for me, my diagnosis came a lot later in life than it did for Allie. I believe I was about 22 or 23 when I was finally diagnosed. I had gone through high school. I had gone through college um, and I was in grad school also at Harvard. <laughs> There's a connection there. And 
I just started to get really stressed out. I mean, obviously, as a grad student, like the pressure that you're under, I was living at home. And so I was commuting from Canton, Massachusetts into Cambridge every day um, on the commuter rail and then the subway. And it was always during rush hour. So for any people out there that do that, bless you. If you don't have anxiety. Uh, you, yeah, you like it. it's just, I mean, and I get it. Like it's so, it's nice that we have this resource, but like, the crowds and then you know the heat in the summertime and the stress of the train being on time and if you're going to get to class on time and then sometimes you have to take a train that gets you there 45 minutes early because the next train gets you there 10 minutes late so that started to kind of build and I had this moment where I couldn't I couldn't get on the train one day like I just was paralyzed with fear Um, and I remember calling my mom and just explaining to her that I was like in a panic I couldn't get on the train so she tried to talk me down and she was like something's going on with you like this 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 is not normal behavior like it's a train (laughs) and I was like you don't understand so she took me you know then then what you'd expect she took me to a doctor a pediatrician and then they were like you know we think you need to go see a psychiatrist whatever so um, I was diagnosed with anxiety um, and depression and I was medicated at that time and then that was the case for me through the rest of grad school the first couple of years as a teacher, and then I took myself off my medication because I felt like, oh, I'm fine. I can handle it. I'm in a better place in life. And I was for a while, or at least I thought I was. You know, I had a job. I moved out of my parents' house. I had an apartment. Like, things were going well. And then I became a mom. Um, I ended up having postpartum depression, which was significant for me because of my anxiety. It, it exacerbated it for me, and I struggled. It was undiagnosed, actually, and partly my own doing because I was hiding it. I didn't know what was wrong. Like, I should be happy. Like, this is supposed to be the greatest time of my life. I'm a new mom. Like, I sh- I'm so blessed, whatever. And I just wasn't. And then finally I said, I need to see someone. Like, I'm in a bad, bad place. So that was when I was 33, um, 34. So, like, this second part of my journey being remedicated is really sort of brand new for me. I started seeing a psychologist again, and I didn't even go back on meds right away. I did that for a year or so, two, almost two years, and then I was like, it's still not enough. Like, I'm still struggling. And then I was medicated about two years ago again, and now I'm finally in a good place. I've found the right combination of medication, support, physical activity, have um, my second child now, totally different experience so lucky and so happy that I made the decision to go back and get help because it was a complete 180 for me in terms of like infancy and motherhood so my journey is a little bit different but ultimately (laughs) we've we've gotten to the same place you know you know what though even though your journey is different I feel like your journey both your journeys are really common much more common than people realize Uh, and, and I love the aspect of the fact that we're hearing about the, the high school perspective, the youth, the adolescent, teenage perspective, going into college. And I'm sure there's a lot of anxiety besides having the generalized anxiety disorder. Well, how do you feel like your, your, your environment and your age maybe affected some of your anxiety? Right. Um, I think part of the whole high school college transition is why I was hesitant at first to even get help because I figured this is just supposed to be a stressful time. This is normal. But I'm glad I eventually did end up getting help. I'm so glad we're here to talk about destigmatizing because part of my initial struggle was I would be both perpetrator and victim to the stigma. When I first found out my diagnosis, um, I was like ashamed to make it public. Uh, I told myself there was something wrong with me. But after slowly like educating myself and learning about myself and my diagnosis and just kind of what all of that means, I've come to, you know, be accepting and happy with with that. Uh, And it's definitely included a lot of keeping an eye on things, making sure things are level, whether I'm uh, like on summer vacation or moving to college or going on like a school trip somewhere. I've had to like tweak my medication and my treatment plans several different times over the past few years, which is not the most fun thing to do. Um, It's a lot of trial and error. So which means like sometimes there are errors and things don't go great. But sometimes, you know, eventually you find something that works and it it gets better. Well, it definitely does get better. I mean, I was diagnosed right after my dad passed in 91 and, um, panic anxiety no one knew anything about it they put me on something called Paxil 
and it was that was to lower your heart rate. You know, it was a, it was a it was a heart med, and I had started on that. And the, the funny thing is, like, I, I see a psychologist and a psychiatrist to monitor meds and to monitor my my state of mind. Twenty three years, you talked about the stigma. You know, I went out on Facebook about four years ago and came out, told everybody, and that was like the last thing to get off my back was, hey, listen. My car can only break down so many times. I can't lie to people anymore. Right, yeah. But I think the greatest thing that we've gotten from this podcast, and I think this is episode, what, four or five, it's awesome to know that there's really no change in what we hear from people. Everybody goes that same route. It's just a different way on how to fix yourself because obviously every person is different. And I've had regression therapy, and I remember having a panic attack at six years old. And the thing is, as your mind grows older, as you get more mature, I was always afraid of having a heart attack because that's what my dad died from. He was only 48 when I was 19. And then I was telling Carrie, you know, I couldn't watch ER or House because they'd run through all the symptoms. Oh, I got that. I'm going to the hospital. But everybody's journey to get to where they are may be different, but everything starts the same. And I think that's a very encouraging, and it should be a I can't say comforting because going through this, you guys know, it's it's horrible. It's excruciating. It is. Well, and it's isolating, it's, too. Yeah, and exhausting. It, but it's comfortable That's a word when you I like hear that everybody is going through the same thing. And like I said, each individual has their own way of getting to where they need to be. Listen, I'm, I'm happy where I am right now. You know, the things I wanted to worry about 20 years ago, getting married, having kids, yeah, I had to put that off 20 years. But I wouldn't have been able to handle anything like that. I think, uh, Allie, um, you're lucky because you're – young and this has come to the forefront right now like i said they i always tell they do us a, a disservice hey take the happy a abilify guy you know oh, yeah, yeah, and like yeah. you said trial and error and a lot of people don't realize that the side effects of anti-anxiety meds are anxiety right so trying to find that you know i was i tried prestique and it made me 10 times worse and right. it was just it was absolutely ridiculous I would never wish this upon my worst enemy, but the way everybody was diagnosed, myself included, it's it's the same. We hear it the same thing, and I think that that can be comforting because sometimes you have to check yourself when something's happened. All right, did I? Is this what this happened before? Because the longer you go without a panic or anxiety attack, it's going to feel brand new. Yeah. When you have them, if, if you got if you guys agree, and then you have to make that mental checklist. I use my mom as a reference. Hey, Ma, when I had these panic attacks, and I have journals too that I can look back on. Right. Do you guys do you guys have to self check sometimes to keep yourself in check? Um, actually, she and I do a really good job of like checking each other. So like, yeah. what'll happen is if like we're going through an emotion, I'll shoot her a text and she's I'm like rational or irrational, and she's like that's irrational. Um, and I, I know that might sound ridiculous to some people, but when you su- oh, that's called a support system. Well, it is a support system, but like for me, I know that it's really just a battle between my intellectual brain and my emotional brain. And the emotional brain is where the irrational thoughts come from. Um, and it's so hard to turn that off sometimes. And, you know, as a science teacher, if you look in terms of like evolution and when, you know, we were living out in the wild, like your emotional brain is your primitive brain. You worked solely on instinct, right? So you were be in a situation and your body would tell you that you had reason to be afraid and you would go on what your emotion was, which was either to fight or to run. Um, and so that's how we are wired naturally. Um, but as, you know, the superior beings that we are, you know, we have the capacity to have intellectual thought. And so it's a matter of being able to slow that emotional brain, take a moment and think about it more rationally. It's the fight or flight. Yeah. My, and my then if you, and if, you know, yeah, you know, and then everything snowballs. And yes. like you said, you have to take a beat. I look back at some of my journals. They would say, write down everything you're doing when you're having your panic attack. All right, afraid to die, afraid to lose my mom, afraid to, yeah. and then by the end, well, I heard in 10 years an asteroid might hit Earth. And I see how ludicrous, Lucas how snowballed this thing became. Now, as a science teacher, did this just perplex you? Um, well, it's funny because I was diagnosed so late. I actually look back on my like teenage, high school, middle school, you know, youth self, and I see all the signs clear as day. I do the like, same thing. Just ridiculousness. Like I'll give you an example. At at the time, I just thought it was completely reasonable. So obviously, anxiety is about control. So the things you can't control are the things that make you panic. 
And so what ends up happening is that you obsess over the things that you can control, as ludicrous as those things might be. So when I was in high school, like I was meticulous with taking notes and making sure that they were perfect because I could control that. But I didn't like using pen because God forbid you make a mistake and you got to like cross it out. So I liked using pencil, but you can't write on the back of a sheet because then it like smudges onto the other side. So I literally had notebooks where in between every page was a blank piece of paper so that it wouldn't smudge on the other side. So my notebooks were twice as fat as they should have been. And my friends were all like, what are you doing? Just don't write on the backs of the pages. And I was like, no, like this is how it needs to be done. So I'd have to like turn a page of the notebook, take the blank page, move it over, turn the next page of the notebook. I look at it now and I'm like that, like someone should have pulled me aside and been like, take, take her now. <laughs> like she, this, this girl needs help. So it's just like, you know, at the time that was like, no, this is, this is my normal. You know, now that is so far from my normal. You know, I used to be someone that was meticulous about balancing my checkbook, <laughs> right? Right down to the, if it wasn't, if it was off by a penny, it was like the world was going to, you know, come to an end. I, I get on my medication, I take Zoloft, and I don't balance a checkbook anymore. I don't do it. Like, I just, I have no desire to. It's like, that's why there's online banking. Like, you right, go you online, just check the app. you just check the app, right? Like, why am I going to write this out? So it's like freeing, but then I don't check it enough that my account got hacked. <laughs> and I was oh, like, no. this is like, now I have anxiety about that. So like, <laughs> that's a great like, story. Zoloft, like, help me remove this anxiety from my nerve. Now I'm, I'm broke because of it. So like, yeah, it's just, it's interesting to look back on myself and sort of see but that comes kind of like with wisdom in general. And then when you start your therapy and, and you're taught to like really be able to you know, step back and look at things more rationally, you start to see these little signs and you're like, that was hysterical. I cannot believe that was me. Yeah. You know, it's just a ludicrous thing to do. So, Carrie, that sounds like possibly, it's, which is a mental illness, a component of mental illness. She might have had some OCD going on. Well, you know, what I was thinking more so of was when we had uh, Melissa Holcomb on. And we were talking about she's the uh, clinical director at Fuller. And we were the topic was getting the clinical perspective on anxiety, where it comes from, when is it become an issue. And so one of the things she mentioned is everybody experiences anxiety and there is such thing as a healthy level of anxiety. It's when it becomes a detriment to your life is when you really start to have to think about, do I need treatment? Should I see somebody? So writing in a notebook the way you did could be classified, you can throw on an OCD component of it, which is also an anxiety disorder, whatever, but no one would look at you and pull you aside and say, oh, Christine, listen, you need to go on meds right away. You're putting every other paper in between. (laughs) Because to a point, some of our anxiety is truly healthy. But for some of us, the ability to be able to control it and regulate it, um, and our bodies be able to to, to regulate it, is really where the issue comes. And we talked, and you'd mentioned um, fight or flight. Which yeah, because is, if, we, if we got rid of all of our, our anxiety, I mean, that's how our ancestors lived. You know, you either fight or, or run to live would, another it day. It would kill you. If right. You if no you had anxiety. no anxiety, you would be like, oh, there's a bear. Yeah. Okay. Oh, well, yeah. I don't care if he eats me or not. Completely you know? apathetic. Exactly. You need that fight or flight. But when it's... When you're short-circuited, you know, yeah. all hell breaks loose. Yeah. Exactly. And we're lucky enough that, um, I don't know if, if, if Dr. Herbert Benson's still at Harvard, but the Mind-Body Medical Institute through Harvard Medical School, uh, Dr. Benson um, founded that institute. And of course, Dr. Benson's known as the founder of the fight or flight response. So you guys are talking about your medication management. You're both on, on medication, but you're balancing it out with... So for me, I balance out my medication with, well, I have therapy as well. Um, That's a huge component for me. Um, And I balance it out with a lot of self-care. We call it selfish self-care. Um, that's Allie's like she uses it yeah, constantly to favorite, remind me that's her term. favorite thing so which um, example of selfish self so selfish self-care would be like being able to say no to someone knowing that you're going to disappoint them um, because it's going to be something that you're not necessarily comfortable doing right um, so like case in point uh, we were supposed to watch the Boston Marathon together this year we had made plans we really wanted to go together I knew how important it was to Allie I look at the weather report I can't stand the cold I don't want to be wet it's going to make me anxious because I don't want to get sick, right? Then you like the hypochondriac in me starts to roll through. Like then I got to take time off of work. Oh my God, like I don't want to do this. So now it's starting to snowball. I'm like, I just got to say, I don't want to do it now. So I had to call Allie and say, unfortunately, I don't want to watch the marathon now. I don't want to stand in cold and get wet. 
Um, so that's selfish self-care. But for me, like a majority of what I do outside of my therapy and my meds is I exercise. It's, it's huge for me. And I have a heavy bag in my garage that I sometimes wail away at. Um, but for me, it's just really important to, to be able to sort of escape and take that energy that I have that you gets pent up when you have that anxiety and like release it. So going for a run is huge for me. Just, you know, lifting some hand weights that I have is really important for me. Um, I always feel like I've accomplished something. I always say like, I hate working out. I love having had worked out, right? As you feel like no matter how bad the day was, like I did that and that was something it's good. the end game, right? Yeah, it's the end, the end game. game. It's huge. So like for me, it's a balance of all those things. It's not any one thing. And, you know, I think that's important because for everybody, you got to find the mix that works for you. So for some people, it might just be the medication. You know, for some people, it might just be the therapy. Who knows? For some people, they might run every single day. You know, I don't do that. So it's a matter of like finding what works for you. Yeah, there's no universal solution. So what do you do, Allie? I also have a mix. My mix isn't exactly the same as Christine's, but um, I am on medication and uh, I am in therapy. One of the things about transitioning out of high school into college was kind of finding the right balance for me. I did play around with, oh, maybe new college, new lifestyle. Maybe I won't need to be in therapy. Um, that was a trial and error that kind of ended in an error. So now I've learned that about myself and I learned that I do benefit from talking to someone every week. I you know, participate in selfish self-care whenever uh, I need to take a moment for myself. And I also do get a lot out of exercise. And I think control also has something to do with that. That's something that I can control. Um, But I really find that it just like clears my mind. It sounds so cliche, but getting up and moving, I even like to tell people, even if you like sweep your hallway, it's still moving. It's still more than the person who sat on the couch all day. And it gets those chemicals in the brain flowing and it really feels good. So that is my go-to. Thankfully, when we have weather like this, I'm able to get outside um, and just go for a jog. Also, I don't know. I drink tea too. Yeah, that works. <laughs> I, like I the also tea um, plug. yeah. <laughs> One of the things that I've started more recently, you had mentioned journaling. I do find that that's helpful when I think or I have the time to. It's not something that I do on a regular basis. It's usually if it's like just right there for me to grab. Otherwise, I'm probably gonna choose exercise over it but that is something that I will do and I force myself to go back and read it Um, I think it's sort of important so that you can kind of like checks and balances with your headspace was there a moment where I felt this low before what triggered it how did I deal with it that type of stuff so I do a little bit of that I probably could stand to do more of it but it is something that I kind of have as uh, you know something I can do if I need to so there's two things that I just I didn't like hearing okay you had said that you were going to try brand new school, you know, brand new life. Right. And you said that was an error by figuring you, you weren't going to need somebody. Right. That wasn't an error. That's what you needed to do. That wasn't an error on your part. You might say trial and error. You didn't make a mistake. You just figured, hey, I'm going to try to do this on my own. That's a learning experience. Right. Now you know. There are, there are no errors along this uh, in a journey when you're trying to figure out what's best for you. And when you say selfish Selfish self-care. Selfish self-care. It's not selfish because here's the deal. <laughs> well, that's a little How- disclaimer we throw in there. Like it kind of sounds like it has a negative connotation, but uh, we like to think of it as selfish is really positive and doing something. Okay, I was going to say yourself. because yeah. if you don't, you know, who, if you don't take care of yourself, who is gonna? Well, exactly. exactly. Well, you know, and then you can't help term. somebody down the road. You know, I mean, you have to take yourself out of situations that are going to cause triggers. Yes. You got to know what your triggers are. And that's part of the, you know, for me, that's been a huge eye-opening thing. That's the exhausting thing, right? I mean, if it was a gorgeous day outside and you were just like, I don't feel like going to the marathon because I'm depressed. Well, then you go. Right, right, right. You You force yourself. Yeah, you had legitimate reasons not to go. In the past, I would have done it anyway because... I am crippled by the potential of disappointing people. So am I. I want to make everybody happy. People you know pleasers. how many times I've been burned? Yes. So I would have still gone and I probably would have been miserable company. And then I probably would have gotten sick and then I would have been miserable for weeks after. So it's it's more just like... Knowing your limitations? Yeah, you know your limitations, you know your triggers and you're like... 
time will she might be disappointed or whoever it is might be disappointed in the short term very briefly but in the end i'm going to be better for it yeah you know and and that's important and also for me and i'm not trying to downgrade Allie's experience by any stretch of the imagination but now that i have children there's a lot more at stake in terms of the decisions that i make you know what i mean so i'm always trying to put myself in situations and positions where um, I'm not going to be triggered because it doesn't just impact me, you know, it impacts my kids. And so I want to, I mean, it's so, like she said, it's so cliche. I want to be the best mom I can be, you know, like it's, it's a, it's real. I don't want my kids, you know, one of the things that I struggle with now is because my experience with infancy between my son and my daughter were so vastly different because with my son, I was not well. Um, and I was so much better with my daughter. It's ridiculous. My son was less than a year old. He's never going to remember it. I have that guilt of thinking like, did he know that I wasn't at my best? Like my daughter got my best. He didn't get my best. You know, I have guilt over that. And my husband just says like, you know, honey, like, again, it's not anything you did wrong. Like, it's just part of, you're better for it now. Like, he's happy. He's got a, a mother that's doing great and is content with it, with her life. And that's all you can worry about. He's not going to remember. Um, My mom feels guilty to this day. She was an alcoholic. Yeah. For most of the time when I was growing up. And she threw all the praise on my sister. And I was the guy left behind. Yeah. But you know what? It was a disease just like anything else. Yeah. And now she's been clean and sober for 22 years. That's amazing. Do I hold that against her? No, not at all. That was just, you know, I mean, the hell I put her through that I feel bad about when they're taking me away in an ambulance and she's bawling her eyes out because she feels there was nothing she could do. Well, there wasn't anything she could do. Right. right. It was out of her hands. She had to, tr- and, and I feel horrible about that. And she's like, listen, we make a deal. You know, you don't, you didn't feel, you don't feel bad about my alcoholism. I'm not going to feel bad about, you know, so you come to terms with it and you, you try to put it behind it. But as a mom, she's always, I, I, I regret you know, being an alcoholic and not being able to help you. I'm like, mom, right, you can't right. put that on yourself. Yeah. It's it's one of those things. So, you know, you don't ask for this. You don't ask well, for this, for thing. this mental illness. You know, she didn't ask to become an alcoholic. Right. So it's all your your journey. Yeah, because no one would choose any of this. No. Like when not you're in the middle of a panic, you're not like, oh, yeah, this is great. This is a great time. Like, sign me up for this. This is precisely what I want to be doing right now. And that's um, part of the, like, destigmatization. Um, I think there's a lot of misconception around the idea of, oh, just choose to be happy. Um, this is not necessarily a choice we make to have this diagnosis or, you know, be depressed. Um, a lot of work goes into it, and it's exhausting sometimes, and that's why it's important to take those small things um, that may seem selfish in the moment to better yourself so you can be a better person to those that you love and it ends up being less selfish in the end. You hit it on the nail, the nail on the head. You have to take comfort in the little victories. Anxiety and and panic and depression, not only does it mentally, but physically it takes it out of your body. So oh, I mean, yeah. but <laughs> like you said, you take those little victories when, and, and if you think it's selfish, that's fine. But man, I'm so glad you said that because- Well, in the long run, it ends up not being selfish because you're more available to the other people in your life. The little victories are the ones that build up because little becomes bigger, becomes bigger, becomes bigger. And then those little victories, they get you going in the right direction. And, and they give you confidence Well, too, that was the like, other thing, you know, take the victories when you can get them. And I'm so glad that you recognize that. Um, yeah. Last week I went to my therapist and I had, you know, like a, we were talking about like the positive things and I had run a race and placed in the race, like a huge thing. And, and I had a couple other big things that were going on. We um, are sponsoring a softball team in Attleboro. So we got like the team shirt, like these huge accomplishments. And then one of the other things that I had told her that was positive was like the way I responded to an email. And I could have like won a major award, but what she was most proud of was the the one sentence response to an email, you know? Like that was such a small thing, but in the course of how I react and respond to things in my emotional brain, it was a huge victory that she was like, look, I'm proud of the race, I'm proud of the softball team, but I am damn proud of the way you responded to that email. Like that is amazing. So, so that a- was a tiny, tiny thing, but she's, she was like, "You are, I am forcing you to celebrate this. <laughs> so let's touch upon that for a minute. We talked a lot about control, right? Yeah, you you right. can't control your genetics. You can't control the environment, the, the events in your life that may lead to trauma 
or anxiety or depression, even outside of genetics. Um, but what you can control is how you respond and react and treat your symptoms, right? Can't control genetics. There's no way you're gonna you're gonna do that anytime soon, not without a lot of research and a lot of money. But even that aside, what's most impressive is the way that you guys are approaching your, your mental health. It's the fact that you are looking at it as a holistic approach. It isn't just about medication management. Exactly. You're not relying 100% on your on your medications to be the magic pills that are going to make things better. You are understanding based on your experiences and probably some research, both being scientists. I'm sure you guys <laughs> put two and two together that there is a there's a, a metaphysical component and that there is um, diet, nutrition, exercise, yoga, wellness. There's there's so many holistic ways to approaching it and it's finding that balance. Yes. Um, for myself, I work a lot with individuals who have what's called a dual diagnosis, which is a primary psychiatric diagnosis but co-occurring substance use disorder. Um, That's a mouthful. It is. Yeah. I say it a lot. Because unfortunately, it have to, you know, we, I would probably say, you know, I don't have exact numbers, so please don't quote me on the data here. But if I had to, to guess, I'd say more than 80% of individuals that I work with and that we know who have chronic mental health issues also have a co-occurring substance use or abuse disorder, okay? Because a lot of folks are self-medicating. They, they're not choosing to put on a pair of running shoes, and run and, and address their anxiety or depression in that way, you know. And I think that makes you both very good role models oh, and good you. messages that you're getting out there. Thank you. Um, you know, because when you're dealing with dual diagnosis for folks, that's two chronic conditions: addiction and a chronic mental health or a mental illness that you have to manage for the rest of your life. I know it fuller as I'm listening to you guys talk about the journaling and the, the exercise and med management. Um, from a more clinical perspective, you guys are absolutely on point. So a lot of like our, our group and the way we, we run our model, because we're a crisis unit, we're a 102 big crisis mm-hmm. okay. inpatient unit, just to give you some perspective, okay? So, you know, we're, we're the folks that when somebody goes to an emergency department um, is a danger to themselves or, or, or others. They're at their absolute worst. Right. And our job is to take them and to diagnose them if that's needed and to stabilize in a very short period of time and then we step them on. So a lot of the way we treat our patients at Fuller is based on clinical research, okay? So if you were to take a snapshot of an inpatient stay at Fuller, you, you're seen by a doctor, you're seen by nurses, you have a caseworker, the docs and the nurses are going to address your medications, whether you need more or adjustments on your current meds, they're going to monitor your symptoms. Um, so you have that medication management piece. But it isn't just that. It isn't just units of people that we just are going to sit there and hand off pills and good luck to right, right, watch right. Family Feud enjoy. What we offer in a co- that component as well is there's a whole structured day of activities and of groups. Research shows, and our own experiences have shown, when you combine both medication management and these coping skills, which running is a coping skill, as well as physiologically helping you guys. Yes. But when you when you balance, find that balance and integrate that balance, it helps to address the major symptoms at hand. We'll do yogas and meditations. That's great. We have gym time. We'll have gym time every day. So they go play ball, um, go outside, get some movement, walk around the quad, um, exercise, yep. um, as well as education around coping skills. Journaling is huge for us, oh, yeah. all of our patients. You know, they'll get journals. And, you know, so a lot of what you're, what you're doing is working because you're just being proactive about it and doing it now versus waiting until yeah it's you're not at that point. easy like i don't want people to think like oh they make it seem so easy like it's you a know, daily struggle it's, a, it's a daily and i want people to, to know that like yeah uh, you know i read a lot about high functioning anxiety right like I, I get that that's like a thing but what what's high functioning and, and to who like whose gauge is that like Every single yeah, day, individual effort I wake different. up, I'm like, take a deep breath. Like, here we go. Like, we're going to just see how this day goes. Um, I know that I'm going to try my best. I know what I got in my pocket to help me get through this day. Um, sometimes, you know, I'm at work and I'm like, the last thing I want to do is go home and work out. I want to go home and I want to take a nap. I just am done with the day. But I, I let myself know that by, at the end of the day, the way I'm going to feel if I didn't work out or I didn't force myself to go for a walk 
is going to be so much worse than the way I feel right now. So I, I find a way to get myself to do that. Um, yeah, and if you miss one day, one day turns into two, then it's well, a week, then the it's a month. Thing. It's like I've put so much in at this point that I know that if I have a couple bad days in a row where like I don't get out and do exercise, it's so easy to fall into a rut. It's so much harder to pick yourself back out of that rut. Like, I've put too much in at this point to stop running or to stop working out. Um, yeah, but it's hard. You have break sometimes. Cause you do. I was, in a, I, was in a, I was in a valley over the weekend. I was, you know, peaks and valleys, yes. and yeah. I just had enough. I call them and, ebbs and flows. Yeah, exactly. And I, was, and I had sent this thing out on Facebook, and people were just dead worried about me. But I, just, I had gotten some news that, you know, a friend of mine had been just using me and knowing – how I would react with my mental illness, they played that against me also. Yeah, of course. You know, right. and that, and it, and it, people were just like, you know, you're not going to hurt yourself, I, you're not going to hurt yourself, I. I was like, no, you know, because I tried suicide before, and you, you girls might get a kick out of this. I was taking the pills, and guess what happened when I was taking the pills? What happened? I had an anxiety attack. I was afraid I was going to die. Oh, I'm like, you wow. idiot. Of course you're going to die. You're taking pills. And I laughed, and I laughed, and I laughed. <laughs> wow. Put the pills back. Called the ambulance, told them what happened. I'll never try that again. Right. Um, when I was in college, I had an evening where I purposefully mixed alcohol with Xanax. Um, that was a low for me. And that was part of my first round of being diagnosed with um, the anxiety and the depression and getting help the first time. So it's so easy to fall into those ruts of, you know, well, this is right here. I know that I won't have to worry or think about what's bothering me. Um, and so I was able to, very similar to you, I was able to call the doctor and be like, these pills aren't working for me. Like it's, there's too much power behind this little pill. Like I don't like that I have it at my, you know, and it was prescribed to me. I was supposed to take it with me. Like if you start to feel anxious, take one. Um, and so I didn't like that I had that ability. It was like, I didn't trust myself. So it's just a matter of like finding other ways. You know, I work out and the high I feel after working out is a natural way to feel the same thing as like grabbing a Xanax, you know? So it's just like, a, it's a choices that you have to make, but you gotta have a good support system around you too. And I want people to know that as well. Like this doesn't all just happen in a vacuum. This isn't just all individual strength that I have in myself to like make the right choices. You know, I have a husband who's amazing and has been on this journey with me. Um, he obviously affords me the time to work out or go for a run when I want that. That would not be possible without his help and, and you know, taking care of the kids or whatever and giving me that time. Um, and just having, you know, people like Allie to reach out to and say, some advice or I need to vent or whatever the case may be. So it's definitely a daily struggle. And I think, you know, you just really have to find that right mix. So, um, so that leads me to my next question, a great segue, think, run, fight. Why don't you tell us about this charity that you've started on behalf of people um, suffering from mental illness? Yeah. Running from anxiety kind of started, Christine and I both realized that we felt better, uh, not only physically but mentally when we got up and got moving uh, we started going on runs together and then one day just kind of had the idea well if this is so beneficial to us there must be other people who we could help and we really try to focus not so much it has to be strictly running but just do whatever is going to make you feel better physically and also mentally so when we hold community events we focus on creating a holistic, supportive environment where people are comfortable to maybe try yoga if they've never tried yoga or try jogging if they've never tried jogging, but also a place where they can come and just feel like they don't have to hold back any of their issues. Maybe they just want someone to talk to. We have three main goals of the organization. Our first and most important goal is to remove the stigma from mental illness. So we are clearly very open about uh, our stories and we encourage others to be as open as they are comfortable with because we want to get the point across that there's nothing to be ashamed of in terms of mental illness. Um, sometimes it's thought of as taboo to talk about, but I am a firm disbeliever of that notion. Our second goal is we just want to encourage people to like get active and get moving and get themselves in a place where they can feel their best self physically and mentally. For us, that's running. For other people, that could be a whole list of other things. But we find a lot of joy um, in like seeing others uh, make that revelation for themselves. 
And then finally, our third goal is to provide scholarships to high school students. So the um, high school students can use those funds if they want to um, put it towards college or um, further education or if they need to fund their health. Um, that could also be used for that. Um, and one of the other things we do, too, is that we realize that in some circumstances, um, people might not be able to go out for a run or to exercise. And so to be supportive and um, still create community in other ways, we also hold monthly support group meetings. Right now, we've been doing that at the Boyden Library in Foxborough in the community meeting room. And they're just meetings where we have um, a clinician there that is to give the advice that like we can't. Yeah, the word I don't know. Yeah, I'm not qualified. Like, you know, I have my own experience, but I don't know, um, you know, the actual like terminology or it's also there. Yeah, it's also there for like if people want supports or, you know, um, references or where can I go? I don't know any of that stuff. And so we found that that's really been super cool learning experience for the two of us and I think that's what's been so amazing about the journey of this organization specifically one I didn't realize how important it would be to people um so that was eye-opening to me like I mean I know that I suffer from mental illness and so many people do but to have people send you a note or you know come out to a farmer's market and say like what you're doing is amazing it means so much to me it matters you're inspirational I'm like am I really like I just I feel like this just makes sense. Like this is what we should be doing. It's no different, you know, than if you were a diabetic, would you say I'm not gonna take insulin? No, of course not. And nobody would be like, why are you taking insulin? Like, <laughs> just make sugar. Like it's <laughs> like, right? Yeah. Like you, you can't do that. Why so it's like, like just yeah, walk. we were talking last week, you break your leg, hey, just walk it off. Yeah, exactly, walk it off. exactly. So, so yeah, so we, we, we wanna, create other ways for people to get involved and to feel supported if they can't be physically active so the support group meetings i've learned a lot um they've been just fun for us to go to and they're really therapeutic for me too um you know uh, people have amazing stories and it's just great we've got some people that they come to every meeting which is awesome and we oftentimes have newcomers to the meetings as well so um, we've been really enjoying that experience too. So that's something else that we do. That's another way that you can get involved. You can go to our website at uh, runningfromanxiety.org. We have all our events up there. We include the races that we're running in because every time we run, we run on behalf of our organization. And we also, any places that we're going to be, like farmer's market, that type of stuff. Um, you can also buy merchandise off the website. 100% nonprofit organization. So all the funds that we make off of merchandise sales or donations go right back into the organization um, in order to create money for that scholarship. Um, and also we're at Think Run Fight um, on all of our social media accounts as well. Um, and so, you know, we tweet out where we're at, what things that are going on. And also, and Allie's way better at this than I am, um, whenever we read like articles pertaining to mental illness or stories that we see we'll tweet those out as references so yeah, people post can them on facebook. post them on facebook and that type of thing too because you know it's not just like hey go for a run it's a lot of like here's some literature you can read too because really all it takes is one thing it might you know some might read it and it might trigger something or make them have a perspective they didn't have before and so that's really the goal. Yeah, you never know what's going to spark people. And I think part of um, like the success, not only of the organization, um, but like especially the support group meetings, um, just the nature of mental illness, it's a very isolating experience. It's a lot of time in my own head, um, just thinking with yourself. And it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking, oh, this is only me. This is something that has only happened to me and nobody else can even remotely relate but because we're opening up and having these conversations I found people feel very um, liberated and just finding others that can relate it's been a great experience for me to meet other people but it's been also very rewarding to have other people kind of get that weight off their chest and find good company it's it's been difficult to sort of create I don't want to say a following, but like people that are willing to come out and support us. Because like, if you think about what we're trying to do, like <laughs> we're trying to get people with anxiety to come out to a support group meeting with people they've never met. Like it's inherently- you want, You're trying to do like an AA. Right, and, but and they're an, they're inherently anxious. Yeah, they don't want to go because say, they don't know anybody. So oh, it's I like, would love to go to your event, but I'm way too anxious yeah. and there's yeah. going to be people I don't it's know. It's such a double, double, a, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know what I mean? It's like, it's just a funny thing. So, um, 
but we're having a good time. We today. feel like in the eleven months we've been doing this, the the support that we've received, the encouragement that we've received, the people that have told us that you know we've mattered to them, and people kind of like come out of the woodwork almost, or people that you haven't heard from for a while will be like, and and you tend to get these messages more often than I do, like classmates of Allie will like send her a text out of the blue like I was having a really bad day and you know I saw a post on Facebook and inspired me I went for a walk I feel amazing and it's like wow like that's the best that's all that we want to do when I came out on Facebook I mean you you get the likes and I and I followed it up with listen I wasn't looking for likes I just was sick and tired of lying to you people (laughs) you know you know you people knew some people knew I had it and I had like 57 private messages that said hey can you talk to me and I tell people, my phone is on 24-7. I said, unfortunately but fortunately, I am, like, very smart about all this stuff. So if you're having a problem, call me, you know. So I get calls in the middle of the night sometimes talking mm-hmm. people off the ledge. And I know that by coming out on Facebook, I've helped a lot of people, and they use me as a resource. And that's not using me. You know, they're, yeah. I'm helping them by them using me as a resource, not, you know, by somebody taking advantage of me because I've offered. But I was surprised, you know, people are like, listen, don't tell anybody I'm not comfortable with it, you know, being out there. I don't have a problem with that. As long as, you know, that's your decision to make. But you're right. When I, when I did that, I mean, I had like so many people get in touch with me and then other people would say, hey, you know what? I know this guy I went to school with who suffers from it. And now, you know, it's, hey, so-and-so told me to give you a call. call. Yeah. Exactly. Um, And one other thing, too, is like we talked about coping mechanisms. I would say, and I didn't think of this at the time, and I should have, running this organization is a coping mechanism for me. Absolutely, without a doubt. Because every time I get one of those messages, it's like, you're inspiring, you're helping me. It's a way for me to be like, I'm going to be okay. Today was a good day. It's a little victory. So definitely, like, we'll be having a bad day, and then we're like, let's focus on the organization. We'll spend a half an hour, Just do a couple work. of things, yeah, for the organization. We get a couple of things checked off of our to-do list, and I'm like, I feel amazing. Like, I feel really good. Like, I have a sense of purpose. Um, I feel productive. Um, so it's definitely the giving back to the community is something that I didn't know would feel as good as it does. And so it becomes almost like, it's a win-win. Uh, yeah, it's a win-win, and it's great. Um, you know, I'm helping others, and it's helping myself. So You'd mentioned earlier like um, how lucky I am that I've kind of realized this relatively young in life, and I do feel so fortunate, um, especially going to college and knowing this situation, knowing my diagnosis about myself, because I've seen like several people come to the realization, I don't want to use the term, have a breakdown like non-clinically, um, but realize about themselves through the semester that they really do need more help than they're getting and I've even had people um, who like live across the hall from me come up to me and say like hey I know you're very open about mental health would you be willing to just talk to me I'm trying to figure a few things out and um, it's it's a great feeling to be able to help someone with that. Well and there's a hope that a domino effect will happen because if you reach out to that person and they realize they might reach out to another person, this person will be like, they'll become you. Exactly. Yes. And then that person will reach out to somebody else, and that person will become the next person, then the next person, the next person. And hopefully we have a whole camaraderie of people who aren't afraid. I've just been an open person all my life, you know, and I've told people, and I, you know, some people say, you know, ease back on it sometimes because people don't always want to hear it. Yes. You know, but listen, I would rather tell everybody everything and have nothing to hide then 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 hide something well and one last thing too is my sister once told me you know if you want to change the world you might not be able to change the world but you can change your street and if you change your street maybe you can change your town and if you change your town maybe you can change your state if you change the state you could change a country maybe then you change the world so it's a matter of like you start small right and slowly maybe it catches on and so i think that's sort of the approach that we have like we would love to have our organization reach even more people than it currently is. But in one month's time, I know that I've probably helped way more people than I even realize. And so that's, that's what I focus on. And you're right. There's going to be naysayers no matter what. Once you open that can of worms, you're opening yourself up for criticism as well, which for someone with anxiety is a little bit difficult. But for every person that's a naysayer, you've got way more people that are like, yeah, that's what I needed. Like you helped me today. So that's what keeps me going. Sometimes the naysayers are the ones who need the most help. Unfortunately. In all honesty, so. Yeah. So 
I can't thank you enough. I think we both are just so appreciative for you guys to be on our podcast. And thank you so much for having us. Talking about not just your organization, but the ways that you guys are paying it forward. And I would say that your organization and the role models that you are to each other are paying it forward. Absolutely. So on that note... Why don't you run down... um, Let's run down our contact information. All right. So for our listeners who want to possibly share their story, offer questions, want more information from Allie and Christine, um, you can, besides reaching out to their organization directly you can reach out to us at mental illness at wararadio.com in addition uh, for folks that are listening who are in the uh, Attleboro or greater Attleboro or southeast or southern Massachusetts area or anywhere near us um, we do have a drop-in center called the you are not alone drop-in center that meets in Attleboro once a month it's the last Wednesday of every month at 505 North Main Street that's the Murray Unitarian Universalist Church from 530 to 8 p.m. and you can learn more about our drop-in center on Facebook at at Attleboro Recovery it is a uh, collaboration of resources around mental health uh, domestic violence and substance use all in one place to help you get the treatment and resources you need Uh, Any questions for uh, me directly or any questions about Fuller Hospital, you can contact Carrie Ballou at 508-761-8500, extension 2354, or carrie.ballou at uhsinc.com. Once again, we want to thank uh, Christine and Allie for being here today. Remember, folks, if you can't and you feel something is is not right, you can always dial 911. They're not going to turn you away. Just if you feel something's off, don't be afraid because uh, it could save your life. So um, for Carrie Ballou, I'm Derek Mulhan, and um, until next time, be well. The contents of the Exploring Mental Illness podcast provides general information and discussion about medicine, health, and related subjects. The content provided in this podcast, its associated website, and any links material are not intended and should not be construed as medical advice. This podcast should not be used in any legal capacity. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on this podcast or its associated website. If the listener or any other person has a medical concern, they should consult an appropriately licensed healthcare professional. The views expressed on this podcast do not represent the views or opinions of Attleboro Access Cable Systems, Arbor Fuller Hospital, or their parents' corporations. The contents of the Exploring Mental Illness podcast and its associated website are copyrighted Attleboro Access Cable Systems. The podcast may be redistributed in accordance with Creative Commons License 4.0.